Verse 1, Ezekiel chapter 12, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you live in the midst of the rebellious house, who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. And as we've talked about, there is Ezekiel in the midst. That phrase, in the midst, is used quite often in the book of Ezekiel. The Lord wanting to be in the midst of His people, but right now Ezekiel is in the midst of a rebellious house. But I point out to you that that rebellious house is not back in Judah. It's those already in Babylonian captivity. They are referred to here as the rebellious house. And the Lord says this to Ezekiel, and the first question that came to mind as I read that was, what do you do when people refuse to see or hear? You're speaking the truth to them and they don't want to hear it. You're showing them the truth, but they don't want to see it. What do you do with that? One of the realities that any Bible teacher deals with is that there are three critical elements to Bible teaching. Three critical elements, and Jesus pointed these out in Matthew 13 and Mark 4 and Luke chapter 8. And those three critical elements are the seed, the sower, and the soil. You may recall that parable. The seed, the sower, and the soil. Jesus portrayed these. The seed is the Word of God. The Word of God is always good. The seed is always good. It is always potent. It is always powerful. It is always true. The sower is the Son of Man. Jesus claims it for Himself. He's the sower of the seed, but in a like manner, we are as His children as we sow the seed of the Word. So the sower is the one who spreads the word, but there's that third critical element that can be so frustrating sometimes, and it's the soil, which is the heart of the hearer. And the Lord, you may recall, described it four ways. He described it as roadside soil, that hard pan, packed down soil, and the seed lands on it, and it's easily picked off by those demonic birds. You know how I feel about birds, especially in this barn. (laughs) The roadside soil, the rocky soil, is the second type, which is so full of stone, there's there's no room really for the word to get in. It, It goes in, but it can't go deep. And so when the seed germinates, it springs up, but it springs up quickly. It has shallow roots, and so it's superficial, and it dies. That kind of heart dies in the heat of hard times. You may wonder why people, they just they were so excited about Bible study right after they became believers, and they were here every time the door was open, and man, they were in the Word, and then all of a sudden, where are they? Rocky soil. The third kind of soil is the weedy soil, and understand this, weedy soil can be good soil. It just has an infestation. It's just got weeds that get mixed into it. At first it's good, but it becomes overrun. And Jesus described the weeds very clearly. And believers, we need to hear this. He says, the weeds are the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. Worry and wealth, those are the weeds. And I point that out specifically to you believers because that's the most dangerous soil among believers. That's the most dangerous thing that happens to believers who come to the Lord and and don't have roadside soil or rocky soil, but truly have rich, good soil. But the weeds of the cares of this life, the focus of the world, and the draw or the lure of wealth, and no one is uh, not susceptible to it. All of us could be lured. And so Jesus says, all of these soils deny the word its ability, the seed, its ability to go down deep. Glenn pointed this out Sunday morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the verse that says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so we do not drift away from it. 
which implies that we can drift away if we're not paying attention. Well, the fourth kind of soil is the rich soil. That healthy, fertile loam, that that brown, deep, rich earth. And, And the Word takes root in that kind of a heart. It's the hungry heart. It's the person who ends up bearing fruit because the Word takes root. They don't bear fruit because of their hard work, their labor. They bear fruit because the heart is open to the work of the Lord. And the Lord starts to work on the heart and bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. And as we open up chapter 12, the eyes and the ears of the exiles in Babylon are closed. Their hearts are hard. Some are roadside, some are rocky soil, some are weedy. Very few have this rich soil that is so necessary to taking in the Word of God. So what do you do? What does the Lord do with this group of exiles, this rebellious house that refused to see and to hear? Well, He resorts to a different kind of teaching through Ezekiel, and we've already seen some of it. He resorts to some very unique techniques to implant His Word. The prophet, and note this, the prophet didn't just preach the message, the prophet personified the message. The prophet performs the message, if you will. He role plays. He acts out. He does some of the strangest things of any prophet in the Hebrew Scriptures because the people's hearts are hard. Because the people are not listening or looking. So he has to do something to get their attention. Mind you, it's still God's Word. The entirety of Ezekiel is still the inspired Word of God. But it is so uniquely inspired because of the strange and bizarre things God asks Ezekiel to do. Three weeks ago, again, we left off. After Ezekiel's real-time vision, remember chapters 8-11, through 11, he's caught up in the vision to Jerusalem in real time, sees what's going on, sees the abominations there, and before he comes back to himself, he sees the departure of the glory of the Lord. The Lord departs from the temple, out the eastern gate, up to the Mount of Olives, and then on up to heaven, and Ezekiel witnesses that departure. Well, now at the beginning of chapter 12, the Lord has Ezekiel role-play his own departure. Verse 3, Therefore, son of man, prepare for yourself baggage for exile and go into exile by day in their sight. Even go into exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. Bring your baggage out by day in their sight as baggage for exile. And then you will go out at evening in their sight as those going into exile. Dig a hole through the wall in their sight. And go out through it. Load the baggage on your shoulder in their sight and carry it out in the dark. You shall cover your face so that you cannot see the land, for I have set you as a sign to the house of Israel. Ezekiel writes, I did so as I had been commanded. Not the weirdest thing he'll be asked to do. By day I brought out my baggage like the baggage of an exile. Then in the evening I dug through the wall with my hands... I went out in the dark and carried the baggage on my shoulder in their sight. Now there's a great object lesson here for us in what Ezekiel does before the people and in how we live our lives and and how we deal with people whose hearts are hardened or burned or choked out by worldly cares. What do you do if they won't hear the word that you preach to them? Ezekiel became a sign in his times. And so you and I can become signs of the times. We can be personifications of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because sometimes you're going to be the only sign someone will read. 
Your life will be the only way that they will see something different, something unique, something alluring that will draw them to the gospel. They may turn off the TV every time it's being preached. They may shut their ears every time someone tries to invite them to church or a Bible study or try to bring them the word. But if they see in your life, as the exiles watch, Ezekiel personify the message. If they see the message personified. Paul put it this way, Colossians 1.27. God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Which should make us different, shouldn't it? Christ in me? The Spirit of the resurrected Christ in me. Wow. And I think sometimes we as believers just need to remember, Christ is in me. He's here. His Spirit walks, lives, abides in my heart. That should alter me. That should change my behavior. That should make me a living gospel for people to read. Christ in you is not just your hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory for someone else whose heart can't hear the word or whose eyes fail to see what you're trying to show them. But they might see it as witnessed in your life. Christ in you. Jesus put it this way, one of my favorite verses, you hear it a lot, Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. So I constantly need the reminder, maybe you too do you do as well, that I am a sign. I'm a sign. You've seen those guys walking around with the sandwich board, repent, the end is near. Just forget the sandwich board. Just be the sign. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Marked for salvation by the Holy Spirit. As we talked about a few weeks ago, we bear the mark of the Spirit, the seal of the Spirit in our lives, living with Christ in me, walking by His Spirit. And therefore showing people, showing the Word, living out the Word. That's what Ezekiel's doing. And our hope is that they just might read us. Now you might ask, okay, I get that, but why is this a sign for the exiles? They're already exiled. Why is God having Ezekiel act out an exile when they've already gone through this? What's what's the point here? Read on in verse 8. In the morning the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man... Has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, What are you doing? See, God knew this would get their attention. They're asking. They're like, What's up with Ezekiel now? What's he about? Say to them, verse 10, Thus says the Lord God, This burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem as well as all the house of Israel who are in it. Say, I am a sign to you. As I have done, so it will be done to them. They will go into exile, into captivity. The prince who is among them will load his baggage on his shoulder in the dark and go out. They will dig a hole through the wall and bring it out. He will cover his face so that he cannot see the land with his eyes. And I will also spread my net over him and he will be caught in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans, yet he will not see it though he will die there. Ezekiel is not just role-playing a generic picture of captivity here or exile. He is acting out the exile of one man in particular, the prince of Jerusalem. Anyone know who that is? Zedekiah. This is Zedekiah. Now, I might throw you a bit because I didn't say king. 
If I had said, who's the king in Jerusalem when Ezekiel was there, more of you was Zedekiah, right? But he calls him the prince. Note this, Ezekiel never once calls Zedekiah king. Ever. In his entire prophecy, anytime he refers to Zedekiah, it is only as prince. Why? Because Zedekiah is a puppet. Set up by Nebuchadnezzar, not by the Lord. He's standing in the position. He's put there. He's placed there. But he's not the legitimate king. And so Ezekiel doesn't see him as that. He sees him as a prince. He sees him as a leader. But he never once calls him king. So he vicariously acts out the exile of Zedekiah. The escape of Zedekiah, digging through the wall and heading out, throwing his own bags on his shoulders at night and racing to get away from Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian army. He covers his eyes, and that's, it's a show of both humiliation but also of the blindness that you all know historically happened to Zedekiah. 2 Kings 25, verses 4-7. through 7. We've read it several times. It describes his flight from Jerusalem. His capture on the plains of Jericho. It describes how Zedekiah is brought to Nebuchadnezzar at Riblah where he sees him face to face fulfilling Jeremiah's prophecy that he would see Nebuchadnezzar. But then he goes back in or into Babylonian exile having been blinded so he never sees Babylon which fulfills then Ezekiel's prophecy. Josephus points out, and it's interesting, there's dispute about this, but Josephus says the reason why Zedekiah didn't believe Jeremiah or Ezekiel was that he thought there was a contradiction. Because Jeremiah said, you're going to see Nebuchadnezzar, and Ezekiel said, you're never going to see the land. And so Zedekiah said, well, they can't both be right, so one or the other must be wrong, so he just discounted them. And the reality is, and you know this, they were both right. There is no contradiction in Bible prophecy. It may seem that way at times, but every time Bible prophecy is fulfilled, it's fulfilled perfectly and to the letter. As we've talked about, Zedekiah did see Nebuchadnezzar, and Zedekiah was blind before he was brought into the land, exactly as the two prophets bookending this season, both of them talked about this. Well, verse 14 going on says, I will scatter to every wind all who are around him, his helpers and all his troops. I will draw out a sword after them. See, now the people are listening. Because of the actions, the antics, if you will, of Ezekiel, he's got their attention. And now they're listening. And he says, verse 15, So they will know that I am the Lord when I scatter them among the nations and spread them among the countries. But I will spare a few of them from the sword and the famine, and the pestilence, that they may tell all their abominations among the nations where they go, and may know that I am the Lord. Did you notice the plural form of the word nations and countries? The Lord here, through Ezekiel, doesn't say, I'm going to scatter them among the nation, Singular, Babylon. He says, I'm going to scatter them among the nations, the countries of the world. And there is a portent here, a a hint, if you will, of the greater diaspora, the dispersion of the Jewish people worldwide that would take place centuries later. But here it begins. As they already are driven out of their land the first time, and you know there will be a second time in A.D. 70. But again, why does the Lord have Ezekiel role-play this message to the current exiles about Zedekiah's exile? And the reason is very simple. The rebellious house in Babylon, those exiles, still didn't believe they were there for the long haul. 
They still did not accept that it was a 70-year captivity, even though they had been told that's how long it's going to be. They still rejected the notion they thought it would be a quick return to the land, and so they refused to, to accept the word of the Lord to them. Which was a very specific word through Jeremiah chapter 29. He said, build houses and plant vineyards and take wives and, and multiply Jeremiah 29, verses 5-10, through 10, the Lord gives this letter through Jeremiah to the exiles and says, Settle in. Settle down. You're going to be there for a generation or two. Seventy years. Jeremiah 29.10, Thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So the message to the exiles is of the exile of Zedekiah, the last standing prince, and all the people around him, and when the Lord is trying to drive home to the exiles, his gang, you're not going back right away. This is a done deal. And you will know it when you see Zedekiah cross the threshold into Babylon. When you see the rest of the exiles come in, you're going to know that I fulfilled my word and you are here for 70 years. Now to underscore it further... The Lord has Ezekiel act out another sign, verse 17. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, eat your bread with trembling, and drink your water with quivering and anxiety. Have a meal in front of the people and be stressed. (laughs) So Ezekiel was to do this. You know, drinking and and, and being tense and, and fearful. And the people are going, Dude, what is wrong with you? And then he has to stop and explain. Verse 19, Then the people of the, of the land say to the people of the land, Thus says the Lord God concerning the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the land of Israel. They will eat their bread with anxiety and drink their water with horror because their land will be stripped of its fullness on account of the violence of all who live in it. Note that violence begets violence. They had become a violent people, therefore violence would be done to the land. Verse 20, the inhabited cities will be laid waste, and the land will be a desolation, so you will know. And here's that key phrase again, you will know that I am the Lord. Case closed. Discussion over. No more wishful thinking or empty dreams. They just leave you discouraged. That was the problem going on among the exiles. They were still hoping for a quick return. They were hoping against hope. It was hope deferred. And you all know, Bible students, hope deferred, Proverbs 13.12, makes the heart sick. God compassionately does not want His exiles in Babylon to have sick hearts. He doesn't want them fretting because they're not going back. He wants them to know you're not going to go back. So relax. Accept the discipline as it is. Accept it for what it is. I'm going to bring you back to the land. I promised you I would. But not until the discipline is complete. Not until the 70 years are over. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And God wants life for His people. I want you to have life. I, I want you to hope. I believe the Lord would say this to the exiles. I want you to hope. Just not in a quick return. I want you to hope for the return in 70 years. I want you to plan and prepare for that. And in the meantime, settle in and turn your hearts to me. What do you hope for? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. See, that's our hope. Our living hope is our inheritance. And so we hope for that. And that's not hope deferred. That's hope that is based in truth. You ever wonder how someone who goes to church year after year after year just kind of kind of tends to get dry and none of you (laughs) but how does that happen to a person well they lose hope forget about Christ in me forget about the living hope which is at any time he will call us home we have a great hope we have the greatest hope in the world and it shouldn't be messed up with other hopes now there was a problem among the exiles and a reason why They were having such issues and why they weren't believing the Lord. You see, among the exiles there, there were weeds choking out the fruit of the Word. And those weeds are very specific. Verse 21. Then the Word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, what is this proverb you people have concerning the land of Israel saying, the days are long and every vision fails? Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, I will make this proverb cease so that they will no longer use it as a proverb in Israel. But tell them the day draws near as well as the fulfillment of every vision. For there will no longer be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. I, the Lord, will speak and whatever word I speak will be performed. It will no longer be delayed. For in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. There were two false proverbs being circulated among the exiles there in Babylon. False proverbs coming from false teachers. We'll get to them in a minute. But the first false proverb is the proverb of denial. The proverb of denial. The days are long and every vision fails. The prophecies are bogus. This was being said. This was being stated there among the exiles. The prophets have been saying these things since the days of Moses and since the prophecies are unfulfilled, they must have failed. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the Son of Men among them are given fully to do evil. There is a denial, and we've seen it in this world, a denial of God, a denial of Christ, a denial of His return, a denial of the prophecy simply because some remain unfulfilled. Simply because the world has been spinning now for several thousand years. And we are impatient, we humans. Incredibly impatient. I got a a phone call this afternoon from from a girl who was in my youth group in California. uh, Wow. Long time ago. She has kids and she's married and and I felt really old. And she was just talking about, you know, my husband just got a job transfer and our house is up for sale and the kids don't want to move and the house isn't selling and I'm really freaking out. And I said, well, well, how long ago did you put the house up for sale? Well, it's been a whole week. (laughs) I'm like, did you learn nothing when I was your youth pastor? Wait. We want it now. We want it quickly. And because it doesn't happen quickly, denial sets in. 
And there's a second proverb that was circulating as well, not only the proverb of denial, but the proverb of delay. Look at verse 26. Furthermore, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, the house of Israel is saying, the vision that he sees is for many years from now. And he prophesies of times far off. The proverb of denial and the proverb there of delay. Even if the prophecies are true, worst case scenario, they're their distant future. Or distant past. But they're, they're far off. They are not about today. And they're not about to happen. Then God's response to both Proverbs, the proverb of denial and the proverb of delay, is the same. Verse 28, He says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, none of my words will be delayed any longer. Whatever word I speak will be performed, declares the Lord God. And back in verse 25, He says, I'm going to perform it in your days. So now you've heard my word, watch it happen. Those of you who say it's all a denial, that that they're not going to happen. Those of you who say it's it's on a long delay, it's a long time off. Pay attention because I'm about to make it happen in your day. The same attitudes of denial and delay still circulate among people today, don't they? And it's remarkable to me. You'd think we'd learn. Denial is the unbeliever's proverb. That's what the unbeliever clings to. The prophecies haven't come true, therefore they won't. What the unbeliever fails to take into account is God's perfect track record of prophetic fulfillment. And you and I, we've talked about this before, how every single proverb of the first coming or prophecy of the first coming of Christ, every single one fulfilled perfectly. So what do we think is going to happen with the next set of prophecies of His second coming? It will be the same. God has proven Himself again and again and again. Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let Him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. And no other religious scripture does that. Flowery words, interesting sentiments, mysterious language, but no other scriptures but the Bible declare things that have come true and declare further things that are about to come true. Only the prophetic word of God. And the unbeliever fails to take that into account, hasn't sat down and tested that, said, okay, how many prophecies did Jesus fulfill? Over 300. Well, what kind of percentage is there that that could you know, happen by chance? It's, it's astronomical. Denial is the unbeliever's proverb. But distance gain or delay, that is tragically the believer's proverb. Watch this. The prophecy they say is for the distant past or the distant future. It's not for now. They believe that the prophecy was spoken by God. They just don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. They just don't think it has any relevance to them. Oh, I, yeah, I'm sure it's going to happen, you know, but that's a long way off. You know, it's, it's not for today. I, I don't see that happening in the world today. And it is the proverb of delay. And those are the ones, catch this, those are the ones Peter was talking about. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, know this first of all, in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts. 
and saying, where's the promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Note that. These are people who believe in creation. These mockers who come with their mocking are not outside the church. They are inside the church. They believe God started the ball. They believe. They just think it's on a long delay and they begin to mock in their disbelief. Peter says they maintain this. It escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. And the water that was there at creation became the water of the flood. Things have not continued on just as they have since creation. It was a massive flood. Changed everything. Changed the topography of the entire world. The believer who wants to delay the coming of Jesus as long as possible says, no, it's just not for now and it's not for me. And by the way, when they do that, they destroy their living hope. You want to put off the prophecies of Jesus. You want to ignore the coming of the Son of God. And you will douse your own hope. The mockers, amazing, are believers who dismiss the prophetic word. Now you might ask the question, why would any believer want to assume or want to believe that the second coming of Jesus was a long way off? Why would anyone want to put that off? i give you a one word answer. Weeds. Weeds in the soil. Those weeds that are choking the word of truth, the prophetic word. The word is springing up, but the weeds are choking it out. The worry of the world, Jesus said. And the deceitfulness of wealth, Jesus said. I was asked on Sunday, what did God tell you on vacation? Mostly just, you know, my mind just kind of wandered. But I had a moment, we were driving back up. I think it was the first first day on the way back up the coast. And, and it was quiet and kids were, you know, doing their thing in the back and Cheryl was reading and I'm just driving and I'm just thinking. And something hit me that I'd never seen this way before. Let me read it to you. Galatians 1, verse 6. Paul writes, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. What is your gospel? Now now think about this just for a moment. What is your personal gospel? I mean, I've always looked at that verse and I thought, well, Paul's talking about the Judaizers. The background of Galatians, we'll get there someday. Lord willing and the saints don't rise, we'll get there. But Paul is talking about the Judaizers, those who are trying to take Christianity and, and stick it back under Jewish law. And he's saying it's a different gospel. And then he says, well, really, there isn't any other gospel. But they're distorting the gospel of Christ, trying to bring the law back in. So I know Paul was specifically talking about a different religious view. But it hit me that the gospel is the good news that we speak. The evangelion in the Greek, right? It's the spoken good news. And I'm driving along and I went, how many of us speak a different good news than the gospel of Jesus Christ? How often, and it ties right back into the weeds, the worry of the world or the deceitfulness of wealth. And it's not just worry, it's also cares of the world. The things in the world that capture our attention and suddenly become the latest fad. This is my good news. Have you heard about this most recent investment? Oh, dude, i got to tell you about it. 
And suddenly, the wealth becomes the good news. Did, did you hear about this latest dietary thing? we got to talk. And it's a different gospel. We only have one gospel that's eternal. You know that, right? All other good news. The Hobbit is coming out in December. That's good news, but it's not eternal. (laughs) All other good news that we have in the world, whatever it might be, no matter how wonderful it might sound, is still limited to this life. And there's only one gospel that deserves first place in my life, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is eternal. And so I I ask you, what is the enduring message of your life? Because only the gospel is eternal. And when we get dissuaded from the truth, we start to settle for delay. I'll get back around to talking about, thinking about, worshiping Jesus. But right now I've got this gospel I need to deal with. Be careful, that is a path into the weeds. Where are these proverbs of delay and denial coming from? Well, they have a source. And chapter 13 shows us. Verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy, and say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets have been like foxes among ruins. Reminds me of Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 15. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. The little foxes. The foolish prophets. Now, note that God doesn't just call them false prophets. He calls them foolish prophets. The word foolish there is the strongest word. There are several words for foolish in the Hebrew language. That's the strongest one of all of them. You've heard it before. It's Nabal. There's a man named Nabal who is a complete fool and a great picture of this. I won't talk about him tonight. But the word is Nabal and it indicates not only, and get this, it's not only intellectual foolishness, it's moral stupidity. Which is how a foolish prophet can still be crafty and yet be morally bankrupt. He can be cunning. Intellectually, he can be cunning and crafty as a fox, but morally, he's dumb as a donkey. My apologies to you donkey lovers. Psalm 14, verse 1 says, The fool, same word, Nabal, the Nabal, the fool, has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The fool. And these are the foolish Prophets. They may be intellectually sharp, but they are morally idiots. Verse 5, You have not gone up into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. That's an interesting verse. First of all, note he says the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord always has end times overtones to it. Anytime you see that phrase in Hebrew Scripture, it is tied to, it is pointing toward or hinting at at least the tribulation. The time of Jacob's trouble that Jeremiah talked about. The day of the Lord. 
And as it was in the overthrow of Jerusalem by Babylon, so it will be in the running up to the day of the Lord. And even now we see the dramatic increase of foolish prophets in these last days. But listen again to what he says. Pay close attention. You have not gone up into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. The wall here, we believe, represents the last line of moral defense. This is the line of moral and spiritual defense. Those who would stand in the breach, those who would build up the wall, do so to fend off moral collapse. And they stand against the enemies of God. And Isaiah gives us some insight into this. Isaiah 58, verse 12. says, Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. That's a prophecy. Probably of Nehemiah. Perhaps of, of Ezra and those who would come back after captivity. But instead of standing in the breaches and building up the walls, what the foolish prophets do is welcome in the enemy. They don't stand drawing that moral line and saying, we will not cross this line. We need more, we need more people in the church to stand in the breach and to build up the wall of truth and to stop knocking it down so the enemy can come in. There's far too much of that going on in the church today. Just waffling on moral issues. Saying, yeah, I know it's an abomination to God, but culture says, and so we become foolish when we do that. God is looking for those who will build up the wall and stand in the breach and say, from here, no further. This is the line. This is our fall on our sword issue. Glenn mentioned ten points on Sunday. Ten fall on his sword issues. All I would add to those ten, Glenn, is the rest of the Bible. <laughs> this, and I'm, not, and I'm, I'm kidding with you, because I absolutely tracked with him 100% on those. This is my fall on my sword issue. So if you tell me that we need to go a direction that is contrary to the Word of God, I don't go across that line. This is the wall of truth. And we need to be restorers of that wall. We need to stand in the breach. But the foolish prophets are doing the opposite. They're welcoming in the enemy with open arms. In fact, their welcome call is an all too familiar phrase used all too lightly today. Listen to it in verse 6. They see falsehood and lying divination who are saying, The Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them. And yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. Did you not see a false vision and speak a lying divination when you said, The Lord declares, but it is not I who have spoken. The foolish prophets are putting words into God's mouth. How are they doing that? By adding to His word or taking away from His word or speaking words out of their mouth. And all they were adding was that one little phrase, The Lord declares. Or thus saith the Lord. And I've encouraged you before with this. If you believe you have a prophecy from the Lord, you better test it. And not just because it sounds good to you or it feels good in the moment or it seems to work with the flow of things. 
Second Peter 2, 1 says, False prophets also arose among the people. Here they are, false and foolish. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. And by the way, sensuality doesn't have to be a sexual thing. Many will follow their sensuality because it feels good. You know, it's just, it's got a draw to it. And many will follow after that, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And so I would tell you the best way to be sure, thus saith the Lord, is to say it from Scripture. I'll quote Glenn just one more time tonight. Read it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Live it. We have His Word for that reason. That's why it makes me so happy to be here with you all on Wednesday nights, because that's what's going on. I get to share with a group of people who are reading it, memorizing it, meditating on it, and living it out. And that's what we're called to do. And in so doing, by the way, guess what? We restore the wall. We stand in the breach. And we say, this is our line of truth. One more thing here to notice. In verse 6, these foolish prophets are hoping for the fulfillment of their own word. I think it's an ironic statement. Yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. So they're saying, the Lord declares. And then they declare it. And then behind the scenes they're going, boy, I hope this comes true. Because <laughs> it would make me look really good if it did. And if it didn't, I need to hide out for a while. You know, the Lord declares. It's sad because what that points to is their own self-deception. And Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.13, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. In addition to this self-deception, the Lord now lays out three judgments for the foolish prophets. Verse 8, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken falsehood and seen a lie, therefore I am against you, declares the Lord. So my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will, number one, have no place in my counsel or in the counsel of my people. Secondly, nor will they be written down in the register of the house of Israel. Third, nor will they enter the land of Israel that you may know that I am the Lord God. It is definitely because they have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. And when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. Now hang on there for a second. There are some long-term implications here. At least as I read it. And this is very actual and very legitimate that these foolish prophets would have no place in the council of the people. They would not be registered in the house of Israel and they will never come back to the land. As false prophets, they're going to stay in Babylon. But there are long-term implications. Number one, foolish prophets lose access to godly counsel. The false prophet does not have Access to the counsel of the Lord. James said, and I love this verse, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And I'm asking God all the time. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. The false prophet who's out there saying, Thus saith the Lord, Well, God told me this, and this is the way it is. The Lord says, Guess what? You've lost access to my true counsel. The Spirit, my Spirit, is no longer speaking to you. 
And you're not hearing from me. Secondly, foolish prophets, false prophets, will have their citizenship revoked from the registry. Revelation 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Wait a minute, Rick, are you saying that that some Christian who comes along and starts to falsely teach could lose their salvation? Yes. I absolutely believe it. Third one is the foolish prophets will be barred from coming into the kingdom of God. Luke 13.25, Jesus teaches, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then He will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, and listen to this, I do not know where you are from. Quote, depart from me, all you evildoers. You know where Jesus got that phrase? Depart from me, all you evildoers, is from the Hebrew Scriptures. Now he inspired it. He inspired David to write it. Psalm 119, verse 115. Which says, and I quote, Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Anyone who would dissuade you from observing the truth of the word of God, the commandments of God, is an evildoer. The evildoer, the false prophet, the foolish prophet, is a weed working against the growth of the pure and true word of God.